This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Joints. Do you wish your arms and legs were like bendy? Try Joints today. Peter Kalmus, a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, went viral after gluing himself to the front door of a Chase Bank building in Los Angeles, not to protest the latest new ATM fee, but to protest their funding of fossil fuels. And he was just one of over a thousand scientists in over 25 countries who took part in climate protests last week. There's been a lot of recent climate protests we could get into, some big ones in London that stand out. But how do we grapple with the fact that so many scientists are joining in? Good Wednesday morning, I'm Ethan Brown, and this is Tip of the Iceberg, where I will break down some environmental news and then answer a question from our listeners on the air. Submit questions via Patreon, email, or social media. Patron questions go to the front of the line, so sign up at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Think about a time in school or work or college where you had a group project assigned and you really cared about it. You had to do well. So you're busting your tail on this project, right? You're working weekends, you even put your phone away and missed a new Taylor Swift album, but no matter what, you can't do this whole thing yourself. So you're also pestering your teammates constantly to get them to do their part. It sometimes seems like they didn't fully read the assignment. They'll tell you they're gonna do it. They'll get started on one small thing, but not finish it. Maybe they leave you on red or post an Instagram story at the Taylor Swift concert where she's singing from the album you still haven't heard. And at a certain point, you start getting desperate. You lose the will to be friends with those people and start thinking, how do I force you to sit at your desk and get this done? And you don't want to do that. That's not your personality. But this project is really important and you feel like you're out of options. Now, imagine that being your entire career, and you might have a glimpse into the life of a climate scientist. It's not that they've never heard Taylor Swift, I'm sure they've been graced with the tour de force that is blank space, but if you're a climate scientist, you've been saying since the 1980s that this project, mitigating climate change, is really important. It affects all of you, your families, your money, your health, your food, your water, your security. It makes it sweaty at Coachella. And you are working as hard as you can on your field of research, writing papers for the rest of the scientific community, like your job description says to do. And policymakers are saying, we're going to do our part, check back in in 2050, and then start on some little thing and then kind of forget about it. Companies are all over the spectrum, but mostly saying they're not going to do their work until policymakers do theirs. Journalists say, sure, we'll inform the public about you. 
and then either make a doom and gloom story why there's no way we finish the project, or take things out of context, or forget to cover the story at all. And this goes on for over three decades, with you texting and emailing and calling everybody. I bet you even faxed people, or sent Valentine's Day cards saying, Roses are red. Violets are blue. Mitigate climate change, you big piece of poo. And of course, none of that worked. And eventually, when you start losing faith in the group, and you absolutely have to get this project done, yeah, I think it makes sense why you glue yourself to someone's door, even if it's a huge personal risk. Scientists are also people. They go to work Monday through Friday. They've got a boss to report to. They try to do a good job. They have that weird midday crash after lunch where you're like, why don't breakfast and dinner make me sleepy? This makes no sense. Like many of us, many of them come home to families. I'm sure Frank hates the extra editing work, but I love when I'm interviewing a professor and their young kid or their dog runs into the room and we have to retake a question. I always crack up when they get embarrassed or apologetic about it, but it's a special human moment. We're all just doing our best. And that's one of the most enlightening things about hosting the Sweaty Penguin for me. These professors, who were the scary person handing me a Scantron in Blue Book less than a year ago, are human beings, with families, with jobs, with feelings. So we could talk today about what the protests are for, what various bits of praise or criticism I may have for different individuals or organizations putting them together, but when I see scientists specifically take this action, I honestly don't want to go down that road. These are human people who have been trying to do their jobs for decades and frustrated beyond imagination that so many other people on the group project of climate mitigation aren't doing their jobs well enough. I don't think there's a perfect answer for how to get your group project team back on track, unless any of you have some secret motivational tactic. Maybe do a tap on the helmet like coaches do, or give them bacon, I don't know. And politics really doesn't come to mind for me. Not to generalize, but scientists often aren't politics people. These are the STEM majors who complained about having to take history that one semester. Remember those people? I can't imagine they enjoy doing this. If you watch the video of Peter Kalmus, the NASA scientist, he's actually trembling. It's really moving to watch what he did. This was clearly not part of the job description, but he and thousands more scientists feel they have no other options. And I say this to emphasize that scientists protesting at this scale is not normal. Scientists have a long history of clashing with authority. Galileo in the 1600s defended the latest science that the Earth revolved around the sun, which led to him being investigated by the Roman Inquisition and put under house arrest for the rest of his life. I mean, imagine if Galileo discovered the dinosaurs, and then someone made a really annoying purple one, named it Barney, and created a TV show. There would be an outrage. But what we're seeing today, with the number of scientists involved and all over the world, is not normal. 
and I'd argue it's not a good place for us to be. Protests are divisive, and not just politically divisive, but divisive because they are disruptive. Not more disruptive than climate change itself, ironically, but still disruptive. I do think some of the criticisms of these recent protests are valid, to be honest with you, but one that made me really scratch my head is, why are you being disruptive to everyday people? They're not the ones causing climate change, they're just trying to go about their day. Yes, that's the point. (laughs) That's like saying, why is ice cream so cold? Or why do Laffy Taffy's rip your teeth out of their sockets? I did some reading on what makes a protest successful, what makes a movement successful. Occasionally, there's an immediate political response, but there's not as many examples of that. More often, protests are successful because of their effect on the public. We weren't talking about an issue before, now we are. Maybe you were indifferent before, now maybe your kid or cousin or friend is out protesting and you start to learn about it. Maybe you quietly cared about something before, now maybe you decide to use your voice. Eventually, enough people care that then their representatives have to care too. And suddenly, you have a cultural shift. That can't happen without disrupting everyday people, without everyday people noticing you. That's maybe not the speed at which activists would like to achieve change, ideally, The famous March on Washington in 1963, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the I Have a Dream speech, took over 10 years to go from being an idea to being organized, with many months dedicated just to logistics. And though the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, I think most of us would agree that the cultural shift after that protest is still happening nearly 60 years later. So that is kind of the potential, but not all protests achieve that. And even if they do, they start out disruptive. That's why I say they're divisive, not necessarily political, just by nature. That's part of why I personally didn't take to activism. But that's also why scientists don't normally do this, and why I argue it's an awful situation we non-scientists have put them in. Scientists, of all people, should not have to be divisive. They have the most rigorous fact-finding process there is. First, they go to school for years longer than everyone, except maybe lawyers and the inevitable 28-year-old that somehow is a college junior in the NFL draft. Once they're unfathomably smart, and they take on a project, they ask a question, gather tons of data, analyze that data, and write it up into a paper. Then their peers read it, decide if it's good or not, and if so, they publish it. And then other scientists do the same thing, over and over and over, and keep on going until all the other scientists feel good. It's a pretty remarkable process, and I wish non-scientists could appreciate it more. But if people's impression of scientists isn't this, but rather the person who disrupted their day with a protest, then it has some potential to erode trust. I know these scientists have decided it's a risk they're willing to take, and I really do respect that decision and the thought that goes into it. But they shouldn't have been put in that position in the first place. You know what I mean? 
They did their part of the group project. They went above and beyond. And yet they're the ones sacrificing their career, their credibility, their physical bodies, because other people didn't do their part. And these scientists' protests could work. They really could. But it is a big risk, and they never should have been put in that position. I want to finish by turning to a more hopeful note, because this really gave some don't-look-up energy. It feels a bit apocalyptic when scientists are gluing themselves to buildings and putting it all on the line. Like I keep saying, climate change is a very gradual process affecting every region differently. It's bad, it could get a lot worse, but it's not a comet causing our immediate extinction. No issue is comparable to a comet causing our extinction. Maybe Barney the Dinosaur, but that's it. And there's a lot we can do right now to make this better, that any listeners will know also helps our economy, also helps our day-to-day lives. And if these scientists did not feel hope that we can improve the climate situation, I don't think they would do this. They'd be catching up on all the Taylor Swift they missed. They do this protesting because we can get the climate under control. We can make life better for ourselves in the process, but we have to move faster. We need policy to back it up, push it along, get it organized. So let's do that. Let's be hopeful and vigilant and not drag down the group project. God knows scientists have done more than their fair share of the work. Do you wish the little sticks at the end of your arm could grab stuff? If so, joints are for you. With joints, you can chop your skeleton into bits and pieces, glue it back together with cartilage, and then, like, kick people and squish Play-Doh and stuff. Isn't biology cool? Joints. Hey, do you smell that? The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to Tip of the Iceberg. It's time for Ask Me Anything, where our listeners get a chance to ask me any environmental questions they may have. Submit questions on our Patreon, email, or social media. Questions from patrons go to the front of the line, so be sure to sign up today at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Today's Ask Me Anything comes from Anika Deshpande, who asks, How do I explain to deniers why it still snows a lot if climate change is real? Thanks so much for the question, Anika. And I think this is an important question for everyone, not just deniers. Even if we trust scientists and don't worry about the details, it's a good thing for everybody to know. First off, there's a difference between climate and weather. Climate refers to the general temperature and precipitation trends in an area over years, decades, centuries, whereas weather refers to the temperature and precipitation conditions in an area at a specific hour, day, or week. That's why when we talk about the planet warming 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, We're not talking about a 72-degree day suddenly becoming a 74.7-degree day. 
We're talking about much hotter hot days, much colder cold days, much wetter forests, much drier deserts, much stronger storms, and many more tiny changes that taken together make climate change cause for concern. So when there's a really cold day in the winter, or a really hot day in the summer for that matter, that alone doesn't prove or disprove climate change. You have to average that with every other day in every other region of the world to understand the global climate. But it's not just that cold events can happen in a warmer climate. Climate change can also sometimes drive them. For example, the Arctic is warming two to four times faster than the rest of the planet. That means the temperature difference between the Arctic and, say, the United States is shrinking. So there's this circle of air called the polar vortex, which circles the Arctic and keeps the cold air and the warm air separate. But as that temperature difference shrinks, as that dissonance goes away, the polar vortex weakens. It gets wavier. And sometimes... That means warm air from the United States makes its way into the Arctic. And sometimes that means cold air from the Arctic makes its way into the United States. That weakening polar vortex has actually explained some of the extreme cold waves we've seen in the U.S. over the last few years, and we can expect more of that moving forward. But that doesn't answer your question, because you didn't ask about cold you asked about snow. So that's half of it. You need it to be cold to snow. But you also need the snow itself. And that's where climate change really plays in. Do you remember the water cycle from elementary school? Evaporation, condensation, precipitation, runoff? That first step, that evaporation, happens more in a warmer climate. Maybe not on that super cold day, but on all the winter days where the polar vortex leaves us alone and it's a little warmer, more water is turning to water vapor and entering the atmosphere. And with more water evaporating, that means we can expect more precipitation. Not necessarily more snow, because we will also have fewer below freezing days overall, but we'll certainly have more rain, we'll likely have worse snowstorms with all the extra water vapor in the air, and we'll have more of that disgusting sludgy snow, too. Thanks so much for the question, Anika, and thanks to all of you for listening to Tip of the Iceberg. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin, like one of our latest patrons, Stephen Schmidt. Thanks so much for joining, Stephen. We really appreciate it. Stephen and all our patrons get merch, bonus content, and their questions move to the front of the line for Tip of the Iceberg. So if you have any questions you want to get answered, Stephen, definitely let me know. Once again, The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you on Friday for a deep dive on climate migration. Thank you.